0: It's Saturday, April 17th, 2021, and with the Derek Chauvin trial coming to an end and with riot season about to recommence, I figured it would be a good time to revisit an essay I wrote last July and recorded and posted on this podcast on July 24th, 2020, about racial division in America about the narrative surrounding George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and the Black Lives Matter organization, Antifa, rioting, looting, and the responsibility that the Democrat Party bears in the racial strife we see in America. So here it is. It's called Apocalypse Now. Despite loud and preposterous assertions otherwise, America is not a cruel country. It is not doomed. It is not unjust. It is not unfair. Not one of these generalities describes what still remains the greatest civilization in the history of the world. Despite the undeniable obviousness of these truths viewed from any perspective other than the utterly blinkered, spectacularly spoiled point of view propagated by our colleges and in our media and entertainment industry. The story of the country as a whole bears no resemblance to the reality experienced by a great many of its individual citizens. This is not an expression of what America is. It's an implacable symptom of a free and open society and an unavoidable downside of our ever advancing yet ever imperfect human nature. The narrative of the protests and violent uprising is the second in the last four months to see our credulous and delusional public voices attempt to convince us that we have the ability through our technocratic innovations and our constant public trickle of saccharine moral nonsense to prevent bad things from happening and in subjugation to this collective mental disorder, we have actively caused far, far worse. Neither coronavirus nor police violence are bigger problems than what the reaction to them has been. But fear not, we have celebrities and cosplaying Marxists prepared to pat us on the back. After two to three months of lockdown in most large cities, people were ready to explode, and explode they did. The aftermath of George Floyd's death at the hands of a white police officer sent the country to frenzy. What started as peaceful protests in Minneapolis soon turned into absolute mayhem. The cell phone camera images of swarms of people looting and destroying a target followed an auto zone set ablaze. And what followed got even worse. Riders invaded Minneapolis's third precinct and set it on fire. The officers retreated without further incident. But those who wanted to do harm accomplished their mission. Who knows how many murders, rapes, kidnappings, and home invasions will go unsolved as their files and evidence disintegrate into the air. How many injustices were just caused? The riots got progressively more violent and more widespread. Seven weeks later, they are ongoing in Portland and elsewhere. Protesters were spurred to violence and destruction by the radical leftist group Antifa, who are now considered terrorists by the US government, but whose existence is denied by the same media figures who not only acknowledged their existence, but provided them cover for years. It's believed that they were responsible for large drops of bricks planted around cities and for inciting mobs of rioters and looters who turned New York City into a shopping spree for nihilistic criminals and Minneapolis into a photo album of images that may as well be from Aleppo. These riots have been spurred on by celebrities offering to pay the bail of people arrested while rioting, giving moral license to horrendous cruelty and violence. Now, rioters and looters are not the same as peaceful protesters. Everyone with eyes can see this and know this. There's a vast difference between people standing together in solidarity, looking to support any remedy available for one of our society's greatest ills. And those who are taking advantage of the situation to fill out their closets by robbing the Nike store and destroying other people's livelihoods or engaging in violence. So heinous that it's provided images as dark and disturbing as the one of Derek Chauvin's knee on George Floyd's neck. And what do the protesters want? Justice for George Floyd, they say. Shelvin is currently imprisoned with a charge of second-degree murder, among others, to answer for. The officers who stood idly by while a man's last breath was taken by someone tasked to protect and serve are also facing charges, aiding and abetting second-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter. The FBI is investigating. There is absolutely nothing that can reverse what happened. But justice, as slow and unsatisfying as it may be, is being served. The desire to see Floyd's killer brought to justice has expanded into other desires, mostly ethereal. As in every white-on-black police killing, every school shooting, every reported incident of sexual harassment, and the myriad other traumas that are part of the human experience, we are told that what we must do is have an important conversation. But what conversation exactly? Surely not the one that will fix the problems. We'll talk around its edges, hopefully put some heads on pikes for ritual and closure, and then declare our own righteousness as we wait for the next chance at righteousness to arrive. The most important conversations are the most difficult ones to have in the current environment because any dissent in the wrong direction threatens to ruin the lives and livelihoods of anyone willing to express it. The mayor of Minneapolis learned as much one Saturday evening when he was cowed into leaving protests, the crowd telling him to go home. As he walked off, they booed and chanted shame, shame in unison over his refusal to commit to defunding the police. I'm not sure what that is, but it's not an important conversation. We can't have the important conversation because everyone is afraid to have it. We don't seem to be capable of an important conversation about anything at this point. We have people on both sides unwilling to engage. They're unwilling to even tell the truth about what they think. This is not because people don't want problems solved. It's because there's no way to solve problems when it is always assumed that the other side is operating in bad faith. But this is only the functional reason, not the rooted reason. It's not all theorism though because the fear part of the explanation is genuinely felt. The rooted reason we can't have the conversation is because for one side, the conversation is based on an outright lie. It always has been. That lie may soon be seeing its end. Three months ago, when the simmering insanity in our society met full blown panic, I predicted the end of the institutions of science, media, and the democratic party as they currently exist. The reason for this is that the introduction of coronavirus to our lives and the reaction to it would cause these systems to self-destruct because the big lie would finally be exposed. The big lie is the one you try the hardest to avoid and accept. There are little lies in almost any circumstance. Little lies occur every time we incorporate theory into our understanding of the world. Little lies are the ones like, You look amazing from your significant other while you suspect they're sleeping with someone else. Little lies are the explanation for the glitter on your cheek or when you say, I don't know who it is, probably a wrong number as your phone lights up with texts at 2 a.m. in the middle of an argument. Even very smart people will accept the little lies because it's easier than dealing with the truth. We take what the world shows us and we convince ourselves we must be wrong because we don't want to wrestle with the big lie. For most people, the big lie should be unavoidably exposed when they finally walk in on their significant other in bed with someone else. There are those who, even seeing that, invent more little lies to get by. This is how people go insane. Little lies are the ones we pass off in service of what we imagine to be a greater cause. The word greater here is important because if the baseline is our own personal good, the greater cause is something we place higher than our own personal good. Women know that being paid less than a man for the same work with the same hours, the same experience, the same everything is unequivocally against the law, but that although rare, it happens anecdotally or perhaps even personally. So when a politician like Kamala Harris repeats the little lie that women are paid 79 cents to the man's dollar for the same work, while knowing it's not true by any standard, except the made up and preposterous average wage per full-time employee, some not insignificant amount of people will accept the little lie and move on. The little lie is easy to accept because it feels right. And the urge to self-victimization defeats the truth because the truth puts the responsibility for failure back on the woman instead of excusing it as a fact of life in a world intentionally stacked against us. How many little lies do we hold on to? Countless really. But the big lie here is this. If there's a patriarchy, it's the least effective patriarchy one could imagine. The patriarchy we're told exists, has the ability to silence women, prevent them from attaining power, and systematically throws obstacles in their path for its own advantage. We can look at the world and know this is not true, yet we're told it is, and why? The pillars of this argument are weak. To believe this, we would have to believe that male income is a factor of the patriarchy, at its dastardly damnedest, preventing women from achieving their life goals, rather than the fact that the physical work men traditionally performed throughout history had marketplace value and homemaking, while it was as important as paid labor, had little, if any, marketplace value. It wasn't like women could work from home or sell their artwork on Etsy. We have moved past that age, but the underlying fact is remnant. Men toiled in factories and dug themselves into the earth to extract from that toil the sustenance that fed and housed their families while the women stayed home and tended to houses and children. This wasn't because of male need to dominate women. It was a bargain, a partnership, and a trade-off. Men understand this, at least they did when raising a family was a more pressing priority. Men don't see women as rival combatants as modern feminists see us. The work men did produced goods the society needed, and men were suited to do this work. We still are. Nothing about this truism diminishes women in the slightest. We don't need a review of how not every woman wanted that life posed as a counterpoint when it's no more than a non-sequitur distraction. One of the great distortions of the big lie is the idea that men, by virtue of creating the money flow, somehow have the advantage. We do not for traditional straight men. Nearly every act of life is performed in service of convincing a woman. We are enough to grant us the pleasure of her company. Men don't normally buy drinks for women to accost them. Despite fourth wave feminisms, perpetual moaning. We don't leave conversations when you say you have a boyfriend because we respect a man's ownership of you. We do it because you made it clear that you're committed to someone and you can see we're interested in you. It's genuinely bigoted to assume men are primarily concerned with other men's property. The feminist writers who come up with this platitudinal nonsense quite obviously have never had a conversation with any man who doesn't advertise that he is a feminist, which is how you should realize he's a liar. Their articles are consumed as if they've stumbled upon a great insight, but how could that be? Academic feminists leave high school, head to college for indoctrination, and then shelter themselves in their tiny, boring communities of thinkalikes. They demand free food and shelter and income, as if college should continue for everyone indefinitely. Nevertheless, they tell us these men leave the bar conversation upon finding out the girl is taken because they're only after sex, rather than understanding that leaving is an act of respect for the text and subtext of what the woman just clearly said. If a man is only after sex in that situation, he'll stay around beyond the point when the woman makes it clear she is committed to someone else. As usual, modern feminists have the male mind exactly backward. This is what happens when your explanation of the world around you passes through a lens of hatred toward men, justified by personal experience or not. It's assumed that what some man does is something all men do, and that what we all do is inherently evil when it's nothing of the sort. It also gives men no way to act in real life situations without being called a pig. I'm not pretending to account for every interaction ever, and if you have a counterpoint, I accept the validity of it. I'm discussing how we discuss this. The way it's discussed in the current milieu is ridiculous. There is no amount of years a women's studies major or a graduate student or doctor could spend continuing high school for seven extra years that would enable her to understand what 99% of men know instinctively. No amount of shares on a Jezebel article can change that. It's simply wrong. And if you're going to tell me some rich girl who spent too long in an Ivy League nonsense department has written a powerful work about how reality is different than it is, I'm going to show you the door. Reality proves you wrong every day. While you bide your time waiting for the man who's different than the thing you deemed evil, there are women who actually enjoy their lives in a way more meaningful than having their articles praised for 80 minutes on Twitter. Again, if we live in a patriarchy, it's the most pathetically ineffective patriarchy that could possibly exist. For every 100 women who earn a bachelor's degree, 74 men do. Same with master's degrees. 73 men go to graduate school for every 100 women. For every 100 women under 29 with a doctorate, only 81 men of the same age have achieved the same. For every 100 women, 145 men repeated kindergarten. 154 are homeless, and 180 abuse drugs and alcohol. 212 men die by opioid overdose for every 100 women. 232 die between 25 and 34 for every 100 women who do the same. More than twice as many men as women are expelled from school, end up homeless, and die before 24 years old. While the increase in teenage suicide for girls is shouted from the rooftops as the impact of social media, 293 boys die from suicide at the same age for every hundred girls. For every hundred women, nearly 1,300 men die on the job and more than that end up in federal prison. Females outperform males in elementary school, junior high, high school, college, and graduate school, and they outearn men even on the nonsense scale discussed earlier until age 30. Then mysteriously, on average, something changes. Diabolical, isn't it? If this is a patriarchy, it's the worst one imaginable. If strong, smart women are held down by the worst patriarchy imaginable in 2020, I'm not sure men are the ones in search of a reckoning. Everything that justifies the current interpretation of the patriarchy is a little lie. The little lies are accepted with ease so the big lie can remain obscured. The big lie is that there is a patriarchy oppressing women in a systemic oppressive way. There is not. During the Super Bowl played in early 2017, two weeks after the original women's march, the car company Audi placed an ad featuring a father helping his young daughter build a soapbox racer and discussing his dismay at knowing that no matter what happened, his daughter would never be paid or treated as equivalent to her male counterpart. The ad was hailed across Twitter and in feminist blogs for how empowering it was. As I watched it live, my only thought was, Who is this empowering? I don't think I venture into the realm of theory by proposing there is nothing empowering about being told that whatever you might do, however smart or talented or hardworking you are, you will always be less than someone else based on how you were born. No part of this message is empowering. It's not even remotely true but it was convincing to modern feminists whose primary motivation is perpetuating their own relevance. And it was profitable for Audi and for whatever marketing company told them the ad was a good idea. No woman was helped in the making of this propaganda. Is there any reason to imagine this distortion isn't perpetuated across our society? These statistics appear in a summary of studies by AEI with sources cited. They are true. Many of them might sound shocking. If that's the case, it means you've been told a story that does not reflect reality, but does reflect the central narrative. It seems real because there's an industry built up around it, enforcing its message. Many feminists know these statistics, but they don't discuss them. When a man tries to, The claim is that he only points these numbers out as an act of misogyny, and I imagine people will listen to this and revert to that claim immediately. If you want to think that's my motivation, fine, I can't convince you otherwise. But this is crazy. Facts can't be sexist. They're just facts drawn from the real world and existing as representations of the real world in our thoughts and conversations. They exist among a whole set of facts. My purpose isn't to convince you that men have it worse, and I don't believe we do. The very real fear of man's on average advantage in size and strength, which puts women in perpetual danger around bad men, is an experience men can struggle to understand. That's not to say it can't be understood. Many men, have had the experience of being in a physically violent situation with someone whose size or training puts the man at immediate danger of death if he makes the wrong move. And this happens quite a lot. But to be always in danger's presence, men don't share that worry in the same way at all, except perhaps in prison or in terrible neighborhoods or with abusive parents. My purpose is to show you that getting one side of the story is insufficient. If you are interested in advancing society, when an incomplete story is compounded with the built-in excuse that everyone who differs is doing so out of hatred, the theory is solidified into an inarguable truth. It's strange that something inarguable isn't accepted by everyone, isn't it? Not many people doubt that two plus two is four. Not many people doubt that the sun rises in the east. Not many people doubt that if they jump off a building, they will die. These truths are inarguable. That's why no one argues them. This doesn't apply to modern feminist theory. There are mountains of data to support counterarguments. There are countless people, including a great many women, who don't agree with feminist opinions or conclusions. Feminists will tell you that the men who disagree with them hate women. They'll say that women who disagree with them hate themselves. They will even eject these women from the sacred council of girl bosses, deeming them no longer women. Once they've recategorized and slandered everyone who disagrees with them, they'll make statements like, all women want the right to choose, while knowing that more women are pro-life than pro-choice, and a higher percentage of women are pro-life than men. Being pro-life is a product of many things, but there's no reason to believe much if any of that is due to hating women or wanting to control their bodies. Why does this simple misunderstanding generate pervading hatred across the country? What is the point? For all of human history, men have, by their nature, put women and children first when it comes to physical danger. Men have stood on sinking ships, watching women and children float away in lifeboats. Even the most deranged, misandrist feminist couldn't find a convincing argument that this form of masculinity is toxic unless she or them is prepared to say the men's goal was to appear noble, to support their masculine self-image as their lungs fill with seawater. This misunderstanding is one of the pillars of modern feminism. If the pro-life position was understood as people concerned with making sure fetuses they believe to be imbued with a human soul or human rights had the chance to live and that no one has a right to end that human life, the conversation would be much different and a more reasonable, decent solution could emerge. There are ways to ease many people's concerns on both sides, but that is impossible when the sides are reduced to hates women and wants to own them or kills babies. The only reason these viewpoints survive is because they're politically divisive, which makes them politically effective if your strategy is political division. To believe this behavior doesn't exist on the left is to willfully blind oneself to reality. If candidate X is pro-life, Democrats can say that he or she hates women. Thus, the Democratic candidate becomes the candidate for the party of women. Similar race in our country. No one of any sound mind would deny racism exists. It absolutely does. I grew up with it in front of me and have seen it countless times with my own eyes. We're conditioned as humans to understand genuine hate genuine threat. It's visible in the eyes of every hate-filled person. It's tangible. But in common practice now, it's detected by simply connecting random microaggressions with the microaggressor's politics. In the real world, it's detected by the presence of malice. One of them is performative, part of a grasp for power. One is real and relatable. Which do we discuss? The little lie is that every single variable statistical discrepancy between black Americans and white Americans is both produced by racism and proof that racism exists. Anyone arguing otherwise is called racist, depending on how important the particular part of the narrative that's threatened is, or how famous the transgressor is punishment is meted out. We are told there is a war on black people in this country. Ending this war is the first demand on the agenda of the Black Lives Matter organization. A war being waged against black Americans by white Americans, they say. This is the stake they've planted in the ground. Ending the war on black people includes items like ending the privatization of police, which is a strange request to make while also calling for police to be defunded and abolished, thereby increasing demand for private police. It includes the end of capital punishment, which is not based on race and which I'm not opposed to, and the war on black, trans, and gender nonconforming conforming people. I would imagine that the vast majority of straight white men in America will go their entire lives without ever meeting a black trans person. Are we supposed to imagine that straight white men are murdering black trans people at high rates? They're not. But saying it, attracts more righteous allies. They want to end the war on black immigrants by reversing the 1996 crime bill that Joe Biden wrote. This is incoherent. Black immigrants are more likely than Americans on average to have a college education. They out earn the American born black population by 30% and are nearly twice as likely to marry. As of 2015, black immigration to the United States had increased 56% since 2000. How is anyone supposed to take the claim that there is a white waged war on black immigrants seriously? If there is a war on black immigrants, someone should tell the black immigrants who are moving here in record numbers and thriving. These are facts. My inclusion of them among the overall collection of facts is not racist. Facts cannot be racist. But what if you were only presenting one side of the facts? That would be racist. I agree. It would be that being true. How could it be racist for me to present these facts unless I'm denying all of the facts on the other side that show for a multiplicity of reasons that native born black Americans are having a worse time of it overall than white Americans. These inequalities are hugely important. Not just for the millions of black Americans who are our neighbors and friends, but for the integrity of society as a whole, particularly one built on the idea that every single person is born with equal human value and should be respected as such. As most who highlight the statistics that work against the central narrative are a great many of them black Americans and black immigrants, I am fully willing to engage the facts on the opposite side. I have no interest in hiding any facts as noted. That would be racist. But does that happen? Yes, it does. By whom exactly? Throughout the week since George Floyd's death, we have heard the statistic again and again that unarmed black Americans represent a disproportionate number of deaths at the hands of police based on population. That statistic is undoubtedly true. All the numbers show it to be true. This is meant to be proof of a war on black Americans by police. I mean, deaths at the hands of police should be equal no matter what, right? Would that make any sense? If deaths of black Americans should equal deaths of white Americans at the hands of police as a proportion of population, shouldn't they both be lowered until both reach the proportion of unarmed Asians killed by police? Are we supposed to believe there's an Asian war on white people and that the proof is the statistical difference in deaths per capita at the hands of police? The point isn't to deny the reality that a problem exists merely to point out that there is at least one other variable or perhaps many others that account for statistical discrepancies to accept it face value. The claim that black deaths at the hands of law enforcement officers are due to police being racist white people rests on a series of unproven claims of theory. The first of these is that death at the hands of police is unjustified. While it's easy to say that no police killing is justified, when the topic is explored, very few people will come to that conclusion and they shouldn't. Should the police not be permitted to shoot a man who's out on parole just beat his ex-girlfriend to death and start shooting at the police? Where is the justice if you believe police shouldn't be permitted to shoot to kill? Where is the respect for the life of the police officers, many of whom are not white, who joined the police force to protect people? For almost everyone, this is enough to understand that some police killings are justified. If this makes no sense to you, you don't want reform. You want a different world that does not and cannot exist. Another unproven claim is that police equals white or that regardless of race, police are enforcing a version of what is now nonsensically called white supremacy, which unless you're talking about actual white supremacists is a theoretic claim that does not match reality. Only 35% of the police in America are white. Are we to just imagine that white people are the puppet masters of the majority minority police population? Are we to imagine that all the police department higher-ups are white or even male? We know they're not, but surely the mayors who guide police department policy are right-wing Republicans enforcing racist policies throughout police forces under the weight of their ivory thumbs. Also not the case. Republican mayors govern only 13 out of the nation's 50 largest cities. Who then is perpetuating the white supremacy in police departments? Is it the people of minority ethnicity employed at every level of police operation? Is it Democrats? It has to be one of these to be rooted. Proponents of the little lie would respond that generations of systemic racism have infected the minority police to their core, and that Democrats are being constantly stymied by the Republicans dominating their city councils, state legislatures, and governor's offices, which would be a legitimate point aside from the fact that it's not at all true. But even if these claims were true, they don't save us, as they're both entirely theoretic and have no direct connection to reality. Another theoretic claim is that black Americans are targeted or hunted by police. That is not borne out in the statistics, and even the idea makes no sense in reality. The narrative we receive from our betters is that white cops who are otherwise bored at work drive down into black neighborhoods and try to find semi-plausible reasons to end black lives. To believe this, we have to imagine that the dominant cultural class who supplies this narrative is acutely familiar with policing and with urban neighborhoods populated primarily by black Americans where these imaginary hunting expeditions occur. But how many people who've been in police families or grew up in high crime urban environments are we supposed to imagine inhabit the newsroom of the New York Times or the development offices of major Hollywood studios or the executive board of Twitter or Google? If you consider the possibility that it might be zero for even a second, you realize how quickly the narrative begins to fall apart. The narrative that cops are inflicting violence on suspects of minority ethnicities at higher rates than whites just doesn't hold up. There is no reason to believe the 35% of police officers who are white are the ones inflicting the violence or even that the infliction of violence is part of a white supremacist hierarchy. I hope we can agree that police inflicted violence is sometimes warranted for the protection of the officers or the community. So where is the racialized police violence supposed to appear? In a widely cited study, Harvard's Roland Fryer was, quote, unable to detect any racial differences in either the raw data or when accounting for controls, unquote, when analyzing police violence. But his research did find greater incidents of hands-on forcible police contact with black Americans. It is entirely possible that there is a racial element at work here. But is that the only possible conclusion in 2018, according to CDC statistics on violent crime in incidents with a white victim, 15% of those crimes were committed by a black offender in incidents with a black victim, 10% were at the hands of a white person. Do these statistics matter? Are they racist? The total number of violent crimes committed against white Americans by black Americans nearly equals the entire number of black victims of violent crime by any ethnic group. We do not have to think for even a second that there is something inherently violent about black people. And of course there is not to understand that there is a problem that exists in a specific demographic, which doesn't happen by any measure to be solely the population of black people. It is not. By and large, these crimes happen in economically distressed areas, usually dense, lower-class urban areas and sparsely populated rural areas. Both communities have problems with education, hopelessness, joblessness, lack of purpose, lack of opportunity and lack of dignity. Both communities also have problems with drugs. Added up, these problems are a virus that infects whatever community it reaches, and it claims as many victims as it can. This decimates rural communities, but the damage feels distant and foreign to the middle and upper classes who add themselves to urban environments in droves, but never consider moving to a rural town. As such, we hear almost nothing about decimated rural towns from this class of people, but hear quite a lot about underserved urban centers, particularly majority minority areas. As the newly arrived city folk find themselves threatened on the subway or performing distress about how the locals have been pushed out by gentrification, though they're really just mad that the generations old store was replaced by a Panda Express rather than another Starbucks. It's very woke. We know people in high-crime environments want more policing, not less, and this includes black Americans. Why wouldn't it? Are we supposed to imagine black Americans in urban centers think the problem is that too many criminals in their community are removed from it, rather than understanding that their friends and neighbors would have better lives if the criminal element in their neighborhood was eliminated? And the next generation would have the chance to grow up without the cloud of hopelessness, addiction, crime, and indignity constantly hovering just behind them. Neither the urban community nor the rural community wants to see their youth succumb to drugs, crime, and violence. Yet the problem persists. These aren't awful people who don't want better. They're people who are taught they can't do better no matter how hard they work, no matter how many things they do right, because the system will stop them. This has been the theme for decades. The same is true of women's rights and gay rights. Nearly every story that appears in the legacy media and on cable news and every issue on social media is now filtered through an implied bigotry detector and reduced to a story about a victim class once again being trounced by an invisible army of hateful bigots who would give up their spouses, children, and careers just to microaggress one more person from a marginalized group. This simply is not the real world. How long do we have to pretend it is just because someone who went to college for too long wrote a blog that all your most vengeful friends shared on Facebook? Is this really the world we're trying to build? The same people who believe that young girls seeing images of models and cosmopolitan will forever damage their self-image, nonetheless fail to ever connect the narrative they themselves perpetuate from birth to death about the state of the world, not just for women and minorities, but to men and to white people. History is a wonderful thing to remember in that it allows us to guide our behavior and learn from other people's mistakes. It's not meant to be constantly rehearsed and repeatedly thrown in everyone's faces so everyone knows that how it was is how it always will be. It will not and has not. How is it helpful to anyone of any race to be inundated with the worst parts of history throughout life? I don't think I even knew there were races until it was taught that people who looked something like me owned people who looked somewhat less like me. I'm not saying we shouldn't study America's original sin or that we should be shielded from all the good and bad our ancestors did, not at all. But can we imagine if the cultural relationship between Japanese Americans and non-Japanese Americans was centered on FDR's detainment of the Japanese in internment camps? FDR put a former KKK member on the Supreme Court and is considered still To be a progressive hero. Bernie Sanders can't stop talking about him and his new deal language is still used, but we don't constantly talk about how he placed the Japanese in internment camps. What would the constant repetition of this story do to all of us? I know of course that slavery, Jim Crow and their consequences were orders of magnitude more severe than Japanese internment And my goal isn't to compare them nor to diminish the ongoing impact of slavery. I only want us to consider what the repetition of this story by media and its exploitation by politicians is doing to us, all of us, and how it's changing the way we interact with our world. I don't know the solution to this, but with so much focus on how language and images guide us psychologically, I would think the same people would care about how they're portraying black America quite a lot more than they seem to. Instead, they imagine that problems are solved by the black Panther. Now kids know that they too can be superheroes when they grow up. We are fed narratives about black America. And by we, I don't mean we whites or me and whoever is listening. I mean all of us. It may be shocking, but darker skin tones don't activate a hive mind among black Americans where they can all detect one another's suffering. We should stop acting like it. We are part nature and part nurture. We all in one way or another become who we are by virtue of our experience. We know the people we know. We know ourselves, hopefully. That's it. It's not possible to truly know what someone else is experiencing. You need to account for far too much. You simply cannot know. But what we're shown about people in some way, not like us on the news and in our entertainment plays a large part in forming our ideas of them. Is it time to ask if those ideas are wrong? Is this both the picture and the source of our prejudices? I ask this because the picture of the world being painted for us does not at all resemble reality. How did we get to the point, for instance, that we can be told we're racist for not supporting things millions and millions of black Americans also do not support to believe something that crazy. And I have no doubt that people really do believe that you need a whole lot of theory. Thank goodness that the American Academy has spent much of the last century devoting itself to critical theory, a means of understanding the world as a constant search to figure out every way in which people are being oppressed in every situation. On its face, that sounds noble. If you're involved in a situation where people are genuinely being oppressed, you should try to help end the oppression, of course. But if you finally attune your mind to look for every slight possibility of potential oppression, you will not only drive yourself crazy, you'll come to imagine yourself as everyone's savior. You, after all, pointed out exactly how they were being oppressed. I'm sure they're thankful for knowing. It's odd that they didn't realize that for themselves. But we can be oppressed without knowing that we are. That was a joke. The fact that you couldn't tell should indicate how easily you're prepared to accept a statement so ridiculous. Unless we expect everyone's lives to be the same, no one has any business convincing people who like their lives that they are oppressed. That's not the same as responding to actual cries for help. But if you're concerned about a Norwegian girl's braids, while pretending that your black friends and acquaintances could feel oppressed by a Norwegian girl's braids, that says more about you than it does about the power of braids to oppress. Why are black Americans treated as a monolith? Black Republicans, conservatives, and libertarians are constantly called coon and Uncle Tom by woke people, including woke white people white Americans telling black Americans what they should and should not believe is currently considered woke. Does that make any sense? Why are women treated as a monolith? Why are conservative women constantly demeaned? Why is it acceptable to demand more women in office and then harass Susan Collins because she doesn't do what woke Democrats want her to do? Why do they claim we need a woman of color in the white house and then call Nikki Haley a Nazi? See this for what it is. They're quite clearly saying we want a woman of color in the white house. As long as she shares our views, what then is the woman of color role in this situation? What they're actually asking for is to promote to power someone who represents their political ambition. And they're more than happy to play race or gender games to accomplish this. Consider it's been accepted for as long as I've been alive that the first presidential level decision a candidate makes is the choosing of a running mate. Joe Biden is 77 years old and in obvious cognitive decline. He has virtually no position on anything and no purpose other than not being Trump. There has never been a president more likely to be forced out of office during his first term. He's also christening the future leader of his party with a decision of this magnitude The presumptive Democratic nominee for president chose first to limit his choices to women. And now it seems to women of color, it might well be the case that a woman of color is the best choice, but declaring that your first priorities in choosing a running mate are gender and race gives no one reason to believe the best choice is being made. These declarations were made before vetting candidates. This is profoundly irresponsible and it is tokenism. Barack Obama won the presidency already. The country knows a black American can hold the highest office in the land by narrowing the search to women of color. Biden has introduced doubt into his choice. Why would you put what could be the first woman of color in the position of being chosen for her race and gender before her ability to lead or her ability to help the party win? This is blatant and pathetic pandering to Americans of color and women, assuming that they will vote based on the color of someone's skin and what they think of a candidate's genitals. This may be progressive. It's not progress. This isn't simply an unusual observation. This is the norm for the modern democratic party. By erasing women and black Americans who disagree with them, the party speaks with one voice to and for the people they pretend to represent. Democrats depend on the votes of black Americans and women. The democratic wins to prove this are everywhere. If you were to imagine the simplest possible way to win someone's vote without ever doing anything for them, you could find scant better options than telling them the other side hates you and we know how to fix all your problems. Part of the defund the police campaign rests on the idea that money from police departments will be rerouted to social services, thereby creating the crime-free utopia they envision with Banksy's flower thrower launching Molotov cocktails of love at underserved communities. But we must ask, if social services could work, shouldn't they have worked by now? Many of our biggest cities aren't just run by Democrats now. They've been run by Democrats for decades. Los Angeles hasn't had a Republican mayor for 19 years. Chicago's more like 60. Illinois is a deep blue state. Chicago currently has the country's most rampant gun violence and is a constant font of corruption and misgovernment. Are we to imagine these problems are caused by Republicans and their programs? How is this even possible? Who's stopping these mayors? Certainly not the governors, not the city councils how can this be a Republican problem? How can this be a problem with conservative political philosophy? The common refrain as always is that these initiatives haven't yet received enough money. Really? How did the price of homeless housing units promised by California's proposition HHH go from $140,000 per unit to $700,000 per unit? while 40% of that budget is going to consultants to advise builders on how to navigate the impenetrable building codes that the same government was responsible for implementing. $700,000 can buy a mansion in most parts of this country, yet it can't get an apartment for a homeless person built in three years. Is this Republican graft and corruption? No. We have gone from being Democrats because the party aligns with our values to aligning our values in accordance with the Democratic Party. This is dangerous. And what are the values progressives now profess? They are all aligned on every single cause. Their solutions are the same, no matter the problem. This cannot work, particularly when their suggestion has always led to ruin. Their suggestion is not new or innovative. It is simply socialism. Compare the Black Lives Matter agenda to the Women's March agenda. Compare both to the Green New Deal agenda. All of these documents cross over in nearly every way. Joining the battle, the United Teachers of Los Angeles, the union released its demands for reopening post-COVID. Among these, Medicare for All, defunding the police, Solving housing scarcity, banning charter schools, procuring federal funding, and providing financial support for undocumented immigrants. Which of these is related to returning from COVID? Medicare for all, you might say. Then again, things didn't go so well in Italy and many other countries with government-run health care. The rest of their demands have nothing to do with teachers returning to their jobs, even tangentially. The explanation? normal wasn't working before. The document reads like a social justice hostage letter. The teachers unions are among Democrats, most powerful and necessary political allies. In many cases, they're in the business of creating new Democrats. So the system can perpetuate itself. Once again, they name potential victim classes, children who essentially do not get sick and older teachers. But why are these truly essential employees any different than grocery store cashiers? There's no age limit for grocery store employees. They manage getting to work. The supposed victims are put forth as a clinching argument for any policy proposal because what kind of nice person doesn't want to help the victims? There are so many. Black Americans, victims. Women, victims. Kids and teachers, victims. Animals, our children, us. Fishes, trees, fuzzy kittens, all victims of climate doom. And wouldn't you know it? All of those victims are saved by the same solution. Give them money. Let the government and the experts make our choices and tell us the parameters for our lives and behaviors and enforce everything through shame, derision, and holding our jobs and lives for ransom when and if we fall out of line. There is no excuse for championing all causes at all times with the same exact policies to solve them all. That is not problem solving. It is ideology. For socialism to be the answer to every issue, every issue would have to be simple. Shall we pretend race is a simple issue? Healthcare, the environment? Of course not. So why are we being told the solution is always more government programs? More people being made dependent on government programs is not only financially unsustainable, it is spiritually unsustainable. Constantly enforcing the idea that people cannot fix their own situations because they're not able to compete in a world where equality isn't manufactured for them is the same as telling them they can't compete in the world, period. This message is demeaning and undignified. It's cruel to constantly reinforce this idea, but it persists. It's repeated constantly. Some facts about Black Lives Matter the organization. Donations to Black Lives Matter are processed through a democratic donation platform called Act Blue. Act Blue processes donations for Democratic candidates and causes. I donated to quite a few Democratic candidates in the primary cycle via Act Blue, hoping that people like Pete Buttigieg, Tulsi Gabbard, Steve Bullock, Michael Bennett, Andrew Yang and Amy Klobuchar would continue to appear on future debate stages. I didn't and don't love any of those candidates, but I wanted someone competent facing Donald Trump, but most definitely not Bernie Sanders. I do not believe the process produced that. Act Blue is intimately tied to the Democratic Party. While the overboard claim that Black Lives Matter donations go to the DNC is probably false, It still says quite a lot about where their priorities are aligned. The movement is apparently about black lives from a far left perspective. The message is clear. Voting Democrat is helping black Americans. Not voting Democrat is racist. The Black Lives Matter platform matches the platform set forth by the Women's March, the Green New Deal, the Democratic Party, and now teachers unions as bargaining leverage for reopening schools. Is Black Lives Matter an organization built for protecting black Americans? No, it is an organization that is trying to help the Democratic Party win elections by co-opting the cause of racial justice and exploiting a societal problem and millions of Americans selected for by skin color. Black Lives Matter has not commented on this. People have adopted the retort that Republicans also have a similar donation platform. Win red. this is true. However, WinRed doesn't have an organization exploiting racial division in the country to elect Republican candidates for office and promote a purely Republican agenda. The left is doing all of this in the interest of making the country more socialist. This is not quote unquote red baiting and it's well past the time. It can reasonably be argued that these plans don't have a chance of being implemented with their horrible consequences to follow. We have already seen major cities allow riots and looting, choosing not to prosecute the criminals. We've seen the same with the toppling of statues. We've seen cities allow autonomous zones where multiple young black Americans have already been killed. We're watching our democratic neighbors cultivate a population that is becoming ever more dependent on government assistance since millions of people's jobs are now gone forever. But it's not just that. Black Lives Matter founders, Patrice Cullors and Alicia Garza, describe themselves as trained Marxists. This isn't something I'm making up. They say it on video and they're proud to do so. We actually do have an ideological frame, Cullors said. We are trained Marxists. We are super versed on sort of ideological theories. Their agenda is specifically and unabashedly Marxist. They're not hiding from it. They have had the elimination of the nuclear family in their platform. The nuclear family is quite literally the biggest determinant of future success. Making all the same logical errors they make in the police violence discussion, Black Lives Matter has decided that since more white families stay nuclear, the discrepancy indicates racism. Returning to their funding for a moment. Black Lives Matter is a nonprofit who uses a company called Thousand Currents as a fiscal sponsor. They claim to provide legal and administrative framework for the Black Lives Matter organization. They are also tax exempt. So they hold Black Lives Matter's finances, enabling Black Lives Matter to avoid taxes and keep their financial records quiet. Factcheck.org exploited the issue and says Black Lives Matter via Thousand Currents spends 46% of its budget on consultant fees and a quarter of its budget on salaries, benefits, and payroll taxes. Thousand Currents says Black Lives Matter money is focused on grassroots organizing. Grassroots organizing for Black Lives? If this was about Black Lives, Black Lives Matter would have an agenda of well-thought-out, meaningful legislative changes that they could lobby Congress to pass rather than grassroots organizing, which is primarily effective in vote gathering and isn't something that begins to get results on any short time frame. The organization has been around for seven years, and it's still focused on grassroots organizing. Did they pass criminal justice reform? No. Trump signed an executive order. Did they do police reform? No, Democrats refused to debate Senator Tim Scott's bill, and no one has heard about police reform legislation or George Floyd, for that matter, in weeks. Black Lives Matter has had accomplishments, but they've been few and far between. They've been most active in 2016 and 2020. Could this be a coincidence? Yes. Is it? The organization becomes the center of the conversation whenever a certain type of video of police violence is captured and goes viral, but not every video. Tony Timpa, a white man, was restrained and died in the same way as George Floyd, with an officer kneeling on his back for 14 minutes. He pleaded for help 30 times and repeated, you're going to kill me again and again. Officers then joked about how he was out cold. Virtually no one has seen this video, though it happened in 2016. If the issue was police violence, the lack of accountability, or violent tactics used by police, wouldn't it make more sense to show people all the instances of police violence and convince as many people as possible that this was a dire problem in need of an immediate solution? It should not go unmentioned that Timpa called 911 on himself, saying that he was schizophrenic and off his meds and that he was afraid and needed help. But we were not shown Tony Timpa. We were shown George Floyd. Was George Floyd a victim of racism? Perhaps, but perhaps not. According to the transcripts from the body cameras on the officers, Floyd was saying he can't breathe before he was even on the ground. In fact, he specifically asked to go on the ground. The officers discuss potential drug use and a condition called excited delirium. None of this is to suggest that the use of force was proper or warranted. But until that point, the police response is not out of line with the Minneapolis Police Department's position on excited delirium and how to respond. This could create major problems in successfully prosecuting Derek Chauvin, especially considering that Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison chose to pursue second-degree murder charges for Shelvin, making the case more difficult to win. Keith Ellison, for what it's worth, has proudly shown off the book Antifa, the Anti-Fascist Handbook. Like many Democratic colleagues and media outlets, he not only tolerates Antifa, he supports them. He also has credible domestic abuse allegations from a former girlfriend. He has served as the second in command of the Democratic National Committee. He entered politics under the tutelage of Erwin Marquette, a prominent Minnesota communist. Again, this is not red baiting. Marquette ran for governor of Minnesota as a candidate of the Communist Party in 1974 and has a long relationship with Louis Farrakhan purveyor of shocking anti-Semitism, who's publicly compared Jews to termites as recently as 2018. This is not conspiracy or rumor. This is widely reported, and the Washington Post has fact-checked Ellison's claim that he has disavowed Farrakhan, rating it for Pinocchio's. I'd be less inclined to worry about this if I didn't think there was a fairly good chance that Chauvin will be acquitted and that the response is a potential all-out race war. The country is primed for it, especially if Trump is reelected for a second term and the media stays their current course. Returning to the Black Lives Matter organization, as the vice chair of the board of directors at their fiscal sponsor, Thousand Currents, sits a woman named Susan Rosenberg. Rosenberg was a revolutionary domestic terrorist 40 years ago in the May 19th communist organization. They worked with the Black Liberation Army. They bombed armored cars and government buildings in an attempt to overthrow the U.S. government. She was jailed for the possession of large quantities of guns and explosives. She spent 16 years in prison before Bill Clinton pardoned her on his final day in office. I encourage you to look her up and not take my word for it. People will tell you that this is irrelevant information because only right wingers care about it or whatever they choose to call people so they can invalidate the things those people say you may look into her history and decide that her campaign of domestic terrorism was justified for this or that reason. You may decide she was a hero who was wrongly imprisoned. But if that's true, why did Bill Clinton wait until his final day in office to pardon her? If she was a wrongly imprisoned hero, he should have told the country so and pardoned her on his first day in office. She'd already been in prison for eight years. People will now say but look at all the good she's doing in the world to that. I say, what good she works with black lives matter. Is that proof of goodness for someone who was literally bombing Americans and their property? If it is, you need to adjust your morals as fast as possible. A communist domestic terrorist was released by Bill Clinton on his final day in office and now holds money for an organization founded by trained Marxists, whose platform is at least socialist, if not communist. All of this is intimately tied to the Democratic Party, media, tech, academia, corporate America, and the entertainment industry. Every word of that sentence is true. It's not conspiracy and it's not hidden. Please Google every single claim. The good of Black Lives Matter's political agenda is a subject anyone should be happy to debate, including the members of Black Lives Matter. But the agenda is not meant to be accepted on the basis of debate. Strangely, the only aspect of Black Lives Matter's agenda that the overwhelming majority of the country agrees with is that the lives of black Americans do, in fact, mean quite a lot to everyone. By proposing that a large portion of the country doesn't agree with that statement, you're making up a population of people to hate, then ascribing them a belief, which they certainly do not hold. There is no good that can be achieved by this style of politics. So why resort to it? Because communism can't be sold as a class struggle in America. Americans don't want to be equal no matter how much work they do or how much they achieve. They want to outperform their peers and be rich to achieve communism in America. It has to be smuggled in on the back of other causes. The smugglers chose identity and the environment. There is not a single issue you can discuss with someone consumed by a progressive ideology or enraged with Trump hate. That won't quickly devolve into excuses about identity groups or claims about how someone's behavior is going to kill everyone based on studies and projections by the same people who got the coronavirus pandemic wrong by factors of 10. This is theory. They have these sorts of studies for everything. If you don't do X, you're responsible for the suffering of Y. We cannot operate in this paradigm. And it should be rejected as soon as it's brought up in every single conversation you don't do a policy as sweeping and life altering as medicare for all because of a race or gender group a financial class or anything else the reason to do medicare for all or any healthcare policy for that matter is because it is the best way to cover the most people for the lowest price while making sure that we're incentivizing innovation with a constant stream of smart, competent people of integrity entering the space. If we are doing that, everyone is helped, but we're doing none of it. Bernie tells us the reason for Medicare for all is that the poor are exploited by the rich. Perhaps they are, but that doesn't mean his solution meets any, much less all of the standards I just listed. Who exactly decided that black Americans want communism. In many ways, black Americans are more conservative than white Americans and care far less about political correctness. In fact, surveys indicate that no one is more concerned with political correctness than white Americans, and it's not close. A morning consult poll taken in February for Black History Month found only 30% of black Americans want the country to move more towards socialism than capitalism. They also don't align with the left's agenda on social issues. In an interview that appeared in The Root from 2011, Don Lemon, one of the most severely woke people on the planet, was asked if the black community was homophobic. His answer was an emphatic yes. He said, quote, in black culture and similar in Latino and other minority cultures, it's the worst thing you can do as a man. In both cultures, you have to be a man and they equate being gay with not being a man. We are told continuously that there is a group of people who can be racist, sexist, and homophobic, and the designation is demarcated by an imbalance of power. It is impossible in their telling for black Americans to be racist against white Americans or for women to be sexist to men because white Americans and men, and especially white American men, are presumed to have a power advantage over other groups. It doesn't matter if an individual has an advantage or a disadvantage. All that matters is the group as they define it. They will apply the group stereotype for which they have set the parameters that indicates which group is the only group capable of hate. Let's explore that for a moment before returning to Don Lemon's comment. Woke ideology tells us that groups deemed closer to the bottom of the power structure as they describe it have no biological differences. And identity is a function of social constructs. This is the literal argument in favor of the gender spectrum as described in woke theology. If there truly were no biological differences, how exactly would one group come to hate another group? Who was the first racist? Do we just assume it's a white man somewhere? It is distinctly possible for anyone to hate anyone. This is especially true for anyone who's been harmed by one or more members of another identity group that society tells us is our opposition. It is easy, after suffering traumas at the hands of the relative outgroup, to become embittered and develop antipathy toward that outgroup, forgetting that the harm was inflicted by particular people and not the group. Extrapolating your negative feelings toward particular people onto a group of people you're free to define and change at any time is on every note the exact brand of prejudice we have always been warned about. Social constructs make us who we are. And it's purportedly possible to tell how each person's social construct makes up who they are by tallying their unavoidable and immutable biological characteristics. Wokeness tells its adherents that there are people who deserve their own righteous hatred, but the woke do not consider it hatred by rhetorically cleansing themselves of the ability to hate their targeted anger transmutes into righteousness. They are able to proclaim anyone and everyone guilty of the ultimate sin, hatred based on the immutable characteristics of another while being fully incapable of committing the sin themselves, literally incapable. Does that sound like a movement centered on love and goodwill, much less equality? Far too high a proportion of modern intellectual effort is being spent on creative new ways to prove others are heinous sinners and those in one's own tribe are not. They are fallen. They cannot be redeemed. Grace is not an option for anyone anymore. Only submission. Returning to Don Lemon, he says specifically that black Americans and Latin Americans are homophobic. Don Lemon is both black and gay. These days, he believes black Americans are incapable of hatred. It's quite clear he believes that of himself. But how does that square? Are we to imagine that gay Americans are above black Americans in the power hierarchy? If we agree they are not. How can the woke look at the homophobia Lemon admits is expressed by minority communities In a way, other than the way they view anti-black racism, even the power relationship is the same. In what world is black and Latin homophobia, not blatant bigotry? Let's imagine the woke admit this may be bigotry, but say black Americans aren't capable of being truly racist, which they would describe as a very specific sort of bigotry that black Americans are immune to. Maybe. They would say antipathy toward white people is acceptable because everyone knows that the ancestors of white Americans were cruel to the ancestors of black Americans and that some of that cruelty still exists today on their telling. Not only is it possible for people to be wholly incapable of the greatest evil by virtue of their immutable characteristics. It's also possible to deserve recompense and submission from people whose ancestors might have been cruel to people who might or might not have been their ancestors, again, based on immutable characteristics. I genuinely don't understand how anyone can fail to see this for what it is, an ideology of hate. This dynamic has an analog in modern feminism, which imagines itself immune to hate but has built an entire industry whose sole purpose is to produce content to constantly support the view that men and straight white men in particular are responsible for all the world's ills. This viewpoint is so malicious, their language so caustic that were any of the group designations they discuss simply reversed in a headline. The sentence would be so pernicious and hateful that the headline writer's life would be summarily destroyed. They write articles about why it's a good thing that fewer white men are going to college or how men are responsible for every war. Imagine a headline that read, Why It's a Good Thing Fewer Jews Are Going to College. Is that hard to imagine? The woke have now deemed Jews white, and black athletes and celebrities aligned with Black Lives Matter have been defending one another's anti Semitic statements while posting fake Hitler quotes and supporting, once again, Louis Farrakhan. Odd trick for people whose immutable characteristics render it impossible for them to be racist. Imagine a headline that claimed Indian women took up too much space on the subway. Then understand that woke feminism created the term man spreading to claim that the way men naturally sit is oppressive to women. This is bigotry, pure and simple. If you want to say that it specifically isn't racism, or sexism, fine, have at it. But it is bigotry. It's odd that all of these tendencies aren't described as the broader category. Bigotry has different roots than hatred based on biological characteristics, and it's displayed in different ways. There is no reason to believe that any person is incapable of bigotry. If the everyone is racist people have anything right, it's that. Everyone is biased toward their in-group. That's evolutionary and it isn't going anywhere. The point of America was that we made a shared set of values, our in-group, and call the people who hold them Americans. Again, I know this has failed countless times and will again, but it is still capable of fairness and goodness. Bigotry emerges out of the feeling that the out-group threatens us. That's why it matters that there is something to unify around. The only thing that prevents us from seeing bigotry for what it is, is the narrative that says certain people cannot be bigots. We are placing the value of skin color above the actual value of the person. Everyone can be a bigot. Everyone. Bigotry is what must be rooted out but we can't reach the source of bigotry as they define it because there is no limit to their definition and no moment in time where they solidify the definition. The definition changes when it's convenient to the broader cause a school teacher in Michigan was fired for tweeting the objectively true statement. Trump is our president because the mob decided that statement is out of bounds. If everyone is saying everything is racist all the time, then everyone is racist. But the reason minority status deserves protection in principle and physically is so the majority doesn't try to destroy them. If you're the one saying that everyone and everything is racist and you want to destroy everything racist, what does that make you? They use the Klan and its history to say everyone like this is racist. That's something 99.9% of the country likely agrees with. But then they take the extra step and say, everyone who disagrees with me is like them. That is quite literally besmirching the entire set of people who don't agree with them, portraying these people as basically supportive of the KKK. If I say affirmative action could have its drawbacks and someone accuses me of helping the Klan achieve its ends, that someone is a malicious bad person. They certainly don't care about the issue being discussed. If at the first note of disagreement, their response is to immediately try to link me to the vilest people that have ever walked the earth. Perhaps what's so oppressive is everyone having to be reminded of racism every 10 seconds. Responding that black Americans are reminded of racism at all times by virtue of their being black. No, you're making my point. Society can't escape from this pernicious evil that has driven us apart for centuries because of people who make race the center of life. The woke Taliban doesn't want to help you out of oppression. They want you to destroy your enemies as they define them and on their behalf. What's more oppressive? Understanding that racism still exists while knowing that good-hearted Americans outnumber the racists a million times over, and you're going to have a great day if you go try hard or hearing in every piece of news, social media, and entertainment, now even including major sports leagues, that racism will prevent black Americans from ever being happy. As long as any white American has power anywhere, this is a deranged sickness Bringing up identity groups and oppression is now the response from the old guard to every disagreement. The left relies on someone else's victimhood to make their points. If I say that tent cities full of homeless people are a disgrace and something should be done about them rather than letting the problem fester and grow for a decade, that does not make me racist or in opposition to the less fortunate. If I think Medicare for all is a bad idea, that doesn't mean I want to see poor people die. Server farms that store your million selfies, videos, and random thoughts are a massive drain on energy and a source of pollution. No one tells you that you're literally destroying the planet for everyone each time you post. The New York Times released an editorial against the banning of TikTok, a platform fully controlled by the Chinese Communist Party and potentially capable of allowing China surveillance of every American's technology by downloading the app. They criticize the banning of an app that presents a real national security threat as xenophobic. It's always the same trick. If the issue is too complex for progressives to discuss and too risky to discuss, honestly, they will concoct a new victim class. We must help and an oppressor class to lash out against. Meanwhile, the Chinese Communist Party has a million Muslim Uyghurs in actual concentration camps where one of their missions is to promote repentance and confession. Once again, I am not exaggerating. It was reported by the BBC in November last year. They have already had skirmishes with India over border issues. They have made threatening moves against Taiwan and Australia. The UK just pulled out of an agreement with Huawei for construction of 5G infrastructure, and the Chinese responded with threats. We're told that any American pushback against China and Trump saying the China virus are racist. Really? Isn't it the job of the media to be constructing this story for you instead of me? But then we remember where we were before Donald Trump took office decades of terrible governance with election after election being won by exploiting intergroup hatred while nothing is accomplished. If you are like me, you believe that the political parties, their donors, the corporations, a dishonest media, depraved Hollywood denizens, taking up new causes tech that seeks to control you and the abject failure of academia on all levels are the problem. Ask yourself, Whether Trump or Biden hates these failed institutions in the same way you do, all of these old guard institutions have failed America and its people. Who has the old guard tried to destroy for five years now? Republicans and Democrats have both tried to destroy Donald Trump, as have wealthy donors, corporations, the media, academia, the entertainment industry, and tech. Every single one of those factions has tried to take down Donald Trump. Donald Trump may not be your friend and doesn't have to be, but he's not your enemy unless you're siding with the old guard. Assume for a second that everything Trump does is in service of dismantling the old guards control over American life. Listen to him with this in mind. You might be surprised about how different he sounds. America has been beset by horrendous government for most of the last five decades. Donald Trump was not a part of that, though he profited from it. What we have in Trump is not one corruption replacing another corruption. What we have is a rich, bombastic jerk who believes that the old guard is destroying America. Normal people on the left and right agree with that idea. Donald Trump is the first person in a generation in the American political arena to actually say the things that need said to open the conversations that need to be had. Of course, the old guard would try to destroy him. The problem is not Donald Trump. The problem is political parties, media, tech, academia, entertainment, donors, and the corporations all working together to shape American life in a way that does not serve the American people simply switching government control back and forth between political parties does not solve this problem. It certainly doesn't help underserved communities. If black Americans, women, the LGBT community, and other minority groups wanted their problems solved, they wouldn't give their votes away to the democratic party without expecting anything in return. Likewise, people who care about the loss of their factory jobs to international labor and can't afford their kid's college, especially when academia is so corrupt and so unserious already, give their votes away to corrupt politicians just the same. The reason nothing gets done is because voters don't demand it. Each party scrapes off a portion of those in the middle with issues that cost them nothing politically or financially. Religion, race, immigration, nothing gets done. Contrary to the media portrayal, undecided voters aren't undecided because they're too dumb to figure out which side is the good one and the bad one. They're undecided because both sides are so bad that they're just trying to figure out who will bother them less. Politics has become a cultural waterboarding. The people being hurt by it aren't just the vulnerable. It's a stake to the heart of society. If people believe they are oppressed, they need to act like it as voters and stop voting for the same people. I have been a Hollywood liberal for 15 of my 18 years in Hollywood. I understand the mindset. I am telling you as clearly as I can, California cannot be any bluer and it is falling apart. This isn't because Donald Trump has been in the white house for three and a half years. Ask yourself this, which side of each issue would you be on? If you weren't told that being on the opposite side made you racist or sexist, or one of the other terrible things the very tolerant people will call you. Do you think our borders should be completely open to anyone who wants to cross them? If you don't say yes immediately, you are at least a little bit restrictionist. You will then think, yeah, but my position is not about race. And you're right. It's not. People have locks on their doors to keep strangers out. The border is no different our celebrities and the politicians who make decisions about the border live in neighborhoods that are literally gated. So you can't enter those same people tell you that immigration is about race as if stopping drug cartel activity and human trafficking at the border. Aren't things that every American can get behind that is in no way racist attempting to reduce an issue so important and so complicated to a xenophobic fear of brown skin should be seen for what it is, the use of racism or the threat of being labeled racist to enact policy agendas. What is the worst thing to be called in America? I would suggest it's pedophile with rapist, then racist just behind. If you are any one of those things or even reasonably accused of any of them, you are almost always ejected from society unless you're the governor of Virginia who wore blackface or the prime minister of Canada who wore blackface or any of the comedians and late night hosts and bloggers who wore blackface or Harvey Weinstein or Jeffrey Epstein or Nick Cannon or Roman Polanski or Keith Ellison or former domestic terrorists who are now working for social justice. Otherwise in most places in the country and certainly in public, Anyone who can reasonably be called any of those things is immediately ejected from polite society. If we live in the most racist country in the world, if we live in a rape culture, why are both racism and rape viewed by nearly all Americans as the most heinous things imaginable? It's worth mentioning that I didn't list pedophilia, which is acceptable to some on the left. The North American man, boy, love association is out marching with the current protest mobs still tearing Portland and other cities apart. What could be a better indicator of what our culture really is than the fact that the most heinous things a person could be are overwhelmingly considered the most heinous things to be. That is a society on the right track. Meanwhile, prior administrations and old guard institutions run interference for China a country currently operating concentration camps where a million members of an ethnic religious minority are imprisoned and tortured into abandoning their religion. What's needed is not getting Donald Trump out of office as fast as possible. What's needed is a complete changing of the guard. The old guard has failed us. It's not white men that run all our institutions and control the levers of power. It's the old guard. Our government has been a constant swirl of the same people moving in and out of corporations and government agencies. One party turns the country over to another who then hands it back and nothing happens until black Americans, women, the LGBT community, and other minorities stop giving their vote away to the democratic party for nothing. The old guard will not change and cannot change. The same is true for rural white Americans and evangelicals, as long as they automatically give their vote to Republicans. California is blue. So my vote doesn't matter. They say New York is blue. So it doesn't matter. Alabama is racist. So forget them. People in Florida are all stupid and we don't care about them. These are incredibly destructive narratives. They tear at the fabric of the country and at any hope of proceeding beyond centuries-old grievances, no matter how legitimate. The old guard does not serve the people because it doesn't have to. Its power is unchallenged. Technology and globalization have compounded the problem. The old guard works for no one. It doesn't have to. Donald Trump has spent five years holding a mirror up to the old guard. They treat him as the enemy because he is in fact, their enemy insofar as the people have enemies. I can think of few more deserving than the failed old guard institutions. As I said, in April, these institutions may well be at their end, at least in their current form, the abstractions will still exist. We'll still have media. It just will not be the same. It will decentralize into independent journalists around the country who prove through their work and diligence that they are trustworthy. People will pay them directly for what they do. This has already started with fantastic journalists like Matt Taibbi, who is doing astounding work for his personal subscribers. If he gets even a few thousand subscribers at $5 a month, he will likely make more than he earned as a writer for Rolling Stone. When all the journalistic talent in the world does this, what use will tired old media institutions have the online community and each reporter's peers will fact check them and challenge their arguments. The middleman, the publisher has seen their usefulness come to an end. The New York times is getting into scripted entertainment. They plan to produce television shows. Does that sound to you like a content provider? or the state institution that we grew up depending on for the truth. It is time to realize that the story, as we've been told it, about the most important elements of American life is wrong and perniciously so. People accept the fact that the Democratic Party is every bit as tied to corporate America as Republicans are. That's an easy sell. Bernie Sanders made an entire campaign out of it. No one doubts that the media and academia and entertainment and tech all favor Democrats. There is no time in the last 20 years. It has been otherwise. The reason Democrats under 45 stay with the party has nothing to do with the party's policies. It's the fully accepted notion that the Republican Party is the party of bigots. They hate women and minorities and gay people and immigrants and everyone. Or so the story goes. Yet there exist black Americans who are Republican. There exist gay Americans who are Republican. There are women who are Republicans. If conservatives hated women, why do they care so much about the nuclear family? Which party's goals enable the creation of a society where children are born to single parents, forced to grow up in state run daycare? taught by state-run schools, and then told they have no hope of leaving their station in life because the racists and sexists will stop them. The narrative that conservatism is bigoted is a game played to take power by exploiting the deepest pains of the voters. I often think of bigotry as bullying. The point of making fun of someone's weight or hair, or clothes, or height, or breasts, or glasses, or intelligence, isn't to express your hatred of glasses or height. The point is to strike right at the heart of what causes the person being bullied the most pain. Bullies will single out the one thing about you that makes you the most insecure, something you can't change, and they will never let you forget it. That's not somehow morally good. When it's flipped around on a white person whose family wasn't even in America until the middle of the 20th century, this applies in all directions. We all run into bullies throughout our lives. It's important not to personalize the bully's behavior, categorize the bully by features of their identity, and then center your life around thinking everyone who matches that identity grouping is also a bully. I'm not pretending this is easy for people who've been truly abused. Some people require years of therapy or one day of psychedelics to deal with these deep-seated problems, but it's important to try. Instead, we're afflicted with the insidious intellectual work of people who went to college for too long, ostensibly learning how to stop racism and sexism while somehow managing to increase it everywhere and drive people apart. In White Fragility, author Robin D'Angelo a $6,000 per hour corporate consultant who teaches the employees of successful corporations how to act so no one gets sued, tells us that our whiteness means we are hateful by nature and that we must reestablish a white identity around constantly being anti-racist. DeAngelo recalls finding herself recognizing her own constant racist thoughts. And now she teaches others how to not be racist, failing to realize that not being racist is the default state. We should find it odd that people who try to convince us that biological sex and height are social constructs believe that race is essential. I must've missed the point where In the shambolic historical fiction of the 1619 project, having white identity was a good idea. Then again, 1619 writer, Nicole Hannah-Jones told the world that the riots aren't actually violence because only objects were being destroyed. Aside from the bald faced ridiculousness of that claim, as there were more than a few murders and assaults in the mix of arson, vandalism, looting, destroyed statues, and downright mayhem. Many of those objects represented people's life's work. The stores destroyed in Chicago aren't simply going to cost some rich corporation. They're going to cost the franchise owner, the store's employees who no longer have jobs, and everyone in the community who gets their food and their medications at these stores. Rundown urban neighborhoods are already lacking resources. The mayhem their mayors and governors have allowed compounds every one of these problems. And what was gained? More black lives are regularly lost in a weekend in Chicago than in all the killings by police of unarmed black Americans last year. Where exactly is the social justice? Ibram X. Kendi tells us flat out that the state of no racism cannot exist. You're either racist or anti-racist. Kendi compares racism to a cancer that will not just go away simply by ignoring it. This is an awful analogy, but it is also the claim that anchors his belief that racism is intractable and everlasting. He imagines that racism is currently spreading through the body politic when by every imaginable measure, this cancer is or was quite clearly in remission. He calls capitalism essentially racist, He believes we all must choose a side, racist or anti-racist. The amount of stereotype thinking at work in these books is staggering. The assumption is that entire groups of people, by virtue of race, think the same about everything and have the same racist thoughts as they do. That would seem to be their problem. What person in their right mind allows this refuse to be pushed on them? It is time to reject this idea altogether. I refuse to be put in a position to accept someone telling me that I do not love my black friends or my female friends or my gay friends or my friends from any political party. This will not be a paradigm I participate in. I was in eighth grade when I was called into the guidance counselor's office in my small rural school. There were a hundred kids in each grade, sometimes more sometimes fewer. Until that day, there were no black kids at my school. My guidance counselor told me that a new kid was starting school and that he lived right up the road from where I lived and that he was black. I was told it was my responsibility to make him feel at home. I shrugged and said, sure. Later that morning, I met Joe. During lunch period, we would eat quickly and spend the rest of the time playing basketball or touch football. I had a decent arm back then, and would always play quarterback for my team. I remember throwing a short pass to my right where Joe caught it and took off. A second later, he was caught and thrown to the ground by a kid a couple of years older than we were and known for a mean streak. I remember Joe springing back to his feet, fearless. I'll rub your face in the dirt and not be able to tell the difference, the bully said. Joe left for the day, probably knowing it wasn't worth it. Joe had just moved to our country town from one of the rougher public schools in the city. He'd seen and dealt with much worse than a bully whose family lived in a rundown cabin with 15 junked cars in the yard and a deer rack in front with carcasses hung by their necks. Joe didn't stop playing football and basketball with us. The bully ended up leaving for vacational school at some point. Joe and I never talked about that day. We didn't need to. For the rest of our time in school, he'd be at my house playing basketball in the driveway every day after school with my boombox plugged into an extension cord running outside from my father's woodworking shop. It was the early 90s and we'd listen to DOS FX and Fushnikins and Ice Cube and Onyx. Joe would make mixtapes of stuff from the radio. Joe taught me how to cut my hair with clippers. I still do it. When Robin D'Angelo tells me that it's impossible, to love and respect my friend without constantly enacting the principles of anti-racism. I can only assume she never had black friends until she found out encouraging other emotionally stunted white women to supplicate before black Marxists could make her fantastically wealthy. Should I have spent more time at age 13, making sure that I was creating my own white identity? D'Angelo may not yet realize that her shining moment will likely amount to little more than her head popping up next in a game of woke whack-a-mole, and then her book and reputation will disappear. When Ibram X. Kendi tells me that by not proactively enacting anti-racism, I was actually engaging in racism. I'd encourage him to speak to Joe and find out if that's how he perceived it. I suppose it's not my place to speak for Joe and spoil the surprise. I wonder what exactly the goal here is reinforcing racial essentialism seems like the most exactly wrong way to solve any problem whose cause has race as a factor. Am I supposed to pretend that my friendship with Joe consisted of perpetually enacting a power imbalance? Should I not have played hard when I beat him at basketball? Should I have congratulated him extra when he beat me? Are teenagers with different skin colors allowed to treat each other as equal, normal people? Or was it my responsibility to fabricate every interaction in a way I could rationalize to be suitably anti-racist? Joe wasn't some downtrodden loser who needed my pity. He was a talented, funny, loyal friend who was a big part of a formative time in my life. Was my friend too ignorant to understand he was being oppressed just by being in my presence? Contrary to current opinion, I'm not actually obliged to reframe our relationship according to the terms laid out by practitioners of critical theory who went to college for too long and then chose to capitalize on the manufacture of woke widgets, passing his literature, especially from a middle-aged white lady whose persistent racist thoughts about her own interactions with people of darker skin tone caused her to appoint herself the helper. It seems today's progressives believe their primary responsibility is to save the entire world, people they have never met and will never meet and will never understand by using clever hashtags to mock and ostracize their own friends and family. Their cause is never at home it's always on someone else's behalf, preferably a billionaire philanthropist who promises they're helping people across the world by changing laws that affect Americans. The progressive movement tells them to reject their friends and family if they don't fall in line with the special cause of the moment. What movement about equality and acceptance could ever be so hell bent on giving people new reasons to focus on their unchangeable differences and abandon their loved ones. If they disagree, this would be easy to dismiss as preposterous if it wasn't so omnipresent in everyday life. This movement doesn't exist to decrease hate. It certainly doesn't care about lives. It cares about perpetuating generational pain while creating reasons to inflict new pain with one simple goal. They aren't shy about it. Their aim is to overthrow the American system. They're not shy about their legislative agenda either. Their aim is to enact sweeping socialist reforms on the back of systemic racism and systemic sexism. The past weeks have seen nearly every figure from America's past denigrated, their statues vandalized and torn down. The mainstream press has slandered Mount Rushmore and all four of the presidents whose faces appear there. A sitting U.S. senator has said on national television that she's open to a discussion about the Washington Monument and the L.A. Times endorsed ditching the star-spangled banner in an editorial. Cancel culture is coming for the livelihoods and reputations of anyone who may have said the wrong thing at some point. Bill de Blasio, America's worst mayor, painted Black Lives Matter on the street in front of Trump Tower for, you know, black lives. He has posted 27 NYPD officers to guard the paint on the road in three shifts daily. Meanwhile, crime in New York City is out of control. There were 54 shootings in the second week of July up from 20 in 2019, and that's just gun crime. Residents of New York city post videos on social media about how they're afraid to go outside. De Blasio is defunding the police, but the slogan on the road must be kept safe. He shut down parks in black neighborhoods and shut down Jewish funerals, but he allowed rioters and looters to destroy fifth Avenue prior to the pandemic. De Blasio sold off the city's stockpile of ventilators, a stockpile created by the evil capitalist Michael Bloomberg, to close holes De Blasio created in the city budget. He has allowed the teachers' union and his own psychopathy to close schools for the year. In their place, he has proposed the opening of daycare centers for a hundred thousand New York city children, where the children will be as close together as they are in school and watched over by people in the same risk profile as the teachers in their schools. They just won't be learning anything. De Blasio and the teachers union are holding the children of New York city hostage to enact their political agenda. De Blasio also took New York's plainclothes anti-crime unit off the streets. He's letting criminals who are arrested back on the streets with zero bail. New York is letting prisoners out of Rikers and mass because they are following the science of COVID. The dramatic spikes in violent and other crime were entirely predictable. Less predictably, black politicians and community groups are now calling for the plainclothes unit to be reinstated. Chicago's mayor, Lori Lightfoot, America's second worst mayor, Is presiding over weekend after weekend of 50 plus shootings. When interviewed, she shifts the blame to Trump, knowing that her credulous supporters and anti-Trump loyalists will accept any narrative that attacks Trump. Again, Chicago has had a democratic mayor for 60 years. A Chicago native, Barack Obama served two terms as president. Illinois senators are Democrats. Chicago's outrageous violence Predominantly in black communities, did not start in 2016. In Los Angeles, the second most progressive city in perhaps the most progressive state in the Union, Eric Garcetti promotes protests, but lied before backtracking about the impact of those protests on the coronavirus situation. He mumbles through speeches, dodging important questions in the press conferences but making sure to address every agenda item proposed by the woke Taliban. He tweets with extraordinary condescension as if the citizens of Los Angeles should be treated like trained dolphins trapped in Eric Garcetti's sea world as he ritually abuses us. Meanwhile, schools will be closed for the year because the L.A. teachers union refuses to show up at work. Their demands include defunding police, passing Medicare for all, securing $116 billion in federal funding, increasing taxes on the wealthy, and the permanent ban of charter schools. Not one of those demands is in any way connected to the good of the next generation, specifically the so-called vulnerable communities that they so-called care about. Teachers and administrators will still collect their full pay while conducting classes by emailing homework back and forth. The California Teachers Association is the biggest Democrat donor in the state. A public sector union is the biggest source of Democratic campaign money in this state. If teachers are paid so poorly and operate in such difficult situations, with a full one-eighth of California public school children born to an undocumented immigrant, perhaps it's time to ask what on earth is all of that money going to education isn't the only public sector union though the police are protected by a public sector union as well Public sector unions essentially protect the job status of public employees whether or not the employee is competent or caring. they charge the employees union dues for this service and then spend those dues on their own expenses and and, of course, donations to Democratic campaigns. Meanwhile, the taxpayers are funding the teachers and police, thereby funding their unions, thereby funding Democratic politicians. There is no choice about this relationship. Understand, not only by what they do, what they say they do, and everything they don't do, that the sole mission of public sector unions is to keep bad public sector employees in place and procure taxpayer money. The teachers unions take the added step of lobbying to ensure that private and charter schools have no opportunity to replace them. None of what public sector unions do actually serves the population funding them and relying on the competent service of the people they represent. One may wonder why neither the black lives matter agenda, nor the democratic platform so much as mention the obvious problem of public sector unions and how could they the democrats cannot admit the problems of the public sector unions because those problems aren't confined to public sector unions unions across the country have abandoned their duty to support their workers focusing instead on supporting themselves and the Democratic Party politicians who write the laws that benefit them. An almost unbelievable 90% of union campaign contributions support the Democratic Party. When people are asked about the biggest priorities in so-called black communities, which were encouraged to infer by means of racism that we're talking about urban centers whose majority populations are comprised of black Americans. The response is always a to education and a to crime. How is it that the two most obvious priorities of these communities are controlled by the two major public sector unions? Why are violent cops like Derek Chauvin protected from losing their jobs? One may wonder whether it has something to do with police unions and their relationship with Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, who receives more money from police unions than all but one senator. Likewise, House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer of Maryland receives the second most police union money in the House, Maryland, home of Baltimore, home of more violent crime than all but two cities in the nation. Police officers have said repeatedly that they all know who the bad cops are. If only Democrats had power, surely they would make it so those bad cops could no longer be protected by corrupt unions, forcing their members to join and pay themselves, protected by the Democrats who would address these problems. If only they had power, what amount of democratic power and governance will fix this? Is there any chance that they haven't had the necessary power in their hands for 60 years in many states and cities, and at least half that at the national level. If democratic social policy for urban communities worked, it would have by now. How many excuses for incompetence and undeniably atrocious results do we have to listen to? It is not a funding issue. They control the funding in the states and locales it's not Republican obstruction either. It's not the NRA. The strictest gun laws haven't gotten guns off the streets of these communities. Are we to believe they bought their guns at gun shows? Are we to pretend that they go for mental health checks or happily file their papers for the proposed national gun registry? Is this because of legal so-called assault weapons? Is it video games? California's school system ranks 37th in the nation, It's not because citizens of deep blue, California don't care about education or that the democratic politicians don't have the ability to make changes. Of course they do. While claiming that solving the disaffection of minority communities is their sole purpose, their use of power suggests the opposite. We can recite by rote the victim class in this formulation. As always, it is the most vulnerable. Indeed, that is what it means to be vulnerable. Bad things will affect you first. You will bear the brunt of the corrupt decisions of foolish leaders. And because of this, you will be permanently vulnerable and permanently in need of help. This cycle has repeated for decades under the same chain of command put in place by the same bad actors who perpetuate the problems. The urban centers across our nation's blue states have the same problem. Yet the Democrats who continue getting themselves elected in these cities and states do so on the backs of the vulnerable minority classes and underserved children. The same story is true for modern feminism, specifically on the issue of abortion. Regardless of your position on the pro-choice, pro-life spectrum, it is undeniable that Margaret Stanger, A pioneer of abortion in America and the founder of Planned Parenthood was a racist and eugenicist. On the Planned Parenthood website, she's described as a woman of historic accomplishments, but was, they struggle to admit, complex and imperfect. A rooted way to know this is all true, if you don't want to look it up, is that New York Planned Parenthood just disavowed her in the service of wokeness. Since Roe versus Wade in 1973, black women have had 19 million abortions. Nonetheless, abortion is an issue that brings liberal white women into the fold, and they will vote on that issue alone, especially when it's framed as one of hate. With these groups, the Democrats label the oppressed class and their coalition is formed. This process is repeated across the country, and when it's election time, Democrats dump mountains of money into get out the vote efforts. They don't win arguments by appealing to principles or effective solutions. A partial reason for this is that they simply cannot convince the American public to support their major policy goals. But the real reason is that they have absolutely no incentive to. Every issue is reduced to a matter of identity. By projecting hatred for these groups of people onto the Republican Party, who've had more than their fair share of legitimate racists in office since the civil rights era, when racist Jim Crow Democrats left the party, co-opting the Republican Party in the South, where they've remained for decades. None of them were Robert Byrd, exactly. The former Klan member who had the title of exalted Cyclops before taking the title of Democratic Senator from West Virginia. He held that seat for over 51 years. He worked closely with the Clintons and Joe Biden and was the Democratic Party's leader in the Senate. He passed 10 years ago and Biden eulogized him. But were he still alive? You can imagine that he would not be canceled, but he changed and we can forgive you say. Can we really? Or is that just for the ones who advance your political cause? the governor of Virginia was in a picture of a man in blackface and another in clan garb. The good governor remembers being in the picture, but not which one he is. I'm not quite as old as Ralph Northam, but I think I'd be able to recall whether or not I donned a KKK outfit or covered my face in shoe polish. Northam is still in office happily exercising authoritarian control over his state through the COVID crisis across our culture. This behavior goes unpunished when the offender is a progressive in good standing. Entertainers submit tearful apologies in hostage video style. Celebrities cover for celebrities that profess hate for Jews and white Americans. Jamel Hill, the person most responsible for turning ESPN into a social justice in sports network, penned a preemptive article excusing her own anti-Semitic past. A few days later, she declared on Twitter that everyone who votes for Trump is a racist. Colin Kaepernick expresses support for communist dictators and declares the 4th of July a racist holiday. The two of them have just signed a massive deal to produce content for Disney. Joy Reid regularly expressed deep homophobia in her online blog before she got famous on MSNBC and lied about it, claiming someone must have hacked her and put all those nasty thoughts in print. She was just promoted to a primetime spot in a lineup. The leaders of the Women's March, Linda Sarsour in particular, are vicious anti-Semites. Don't believe me? That's why they're no longer involved with the organization. Congresswoman Ilhan Omar has been forced to apologize for her own anti-Semitic remarks. Joe Biden declares that black Americans who don't rubber stamp the Democratic Party candidates are simply no longer black. Nick Cannon put out a statement written by his publicist as an apology to Jewish people, not the white people included in his hate-filled rant and kept his job hosting the Masked Singer. Not only does he have supporters in saying that people who aren't melanated, meaning people with melanin, are savages and barbarians closer to animals, and that out of their relative weakness compared to black people, which he thinks he can prove with science and history, they continually plot against black people to prevent themselves from being dominated by black people. Thankfully, he didn't explicitly recommend the elimination of white people, but his remarks came a day after Instagram silently removed from their library of gifts, an animated light switch that says mute white people. Somehow, the cancelers at the New York Times are more focused on their own Jewish lesbian editor who occasionally expresses diverse views. Individually, these incidents should be more than enough to get the offenders canceled and boycotted under the current regime. Instead, their excuse is reframed as the reaction of a race weary nation being able to extend forgiveness to transgressors. Cumulatively, these incidents signify the repetition of a problem endemic to the Democratic Party. Race, gender, orientation, and every other imaginable identity group, they keep creating more are exploited for votes, ignored once politicians are in office, and then silenced when one of their members transgresses. The game of identity politics, it turns out, is the cheapest, easiest way to lock down a voting block without having to do anything more than paint all opponents as hateful bigots. I look forward to the day the country turns on them. Realizing that there are few things more vicious than attempting to publicly smear members of the opposition as rapists, racists, homophobes, transphobes, and Islamophobes. And if all else fails to simply say that Republicans don't care about the nation's children. When someone in our own lives uses malicious slander to their own benefit, not caring who's hurt by it, we reject that person. When an entire political party does it, we vote them into office again. If the woke Taliban were honest about any of their principles, the Democratic Party itself would be canceled. It was the party of slavery and the party of Jim Crow alone. That should be enough. But that's ancient history. Of course, they've moved past that. Really a political party can move beyond slavery and Jim Crow, but the country and the Americans in it cannot by 1997, 95% of white Americans said they would vote for a black president. And indeed they did just that 11 years later. If black America were its own separate country, it would be producing the 17th highest GDP of any country in the world. According to Gallup in 2018, the percentage of Americans who believe race relations to be very good or somewhat good has decreased by 18% since 2013 for white Americans and 26% for black Americans. Guess what year black lives matter started? The dissolution of the Democratic Party would have a more direct and more effective benefit to the progressive movement than throwing paint on a George Washington statue. I don't expect that to happen. It's clear that it won't happen based only on slavery and Jim Crow, or it surely would have by now. But dredging up the past isn't necessary when the same problems persist right now. There is a better reason to cancel the Democratic Party. It is the one American institution where there actually exists pervasive systemic racism. While every described measure of equality among groups already exists in the law, including things like equal pay for equal work, the assertion now is that disparities indicate racism. This is a trick. It's not true or even possible, for instance, that all companies discriminate. When people are racist, it is a moral issue. We cannot expect to solve this by law. The deeper truth is there is no solution for this. If we're to impose life-destroying punishment on anyone who acts racist, sexist, or phobic, and by current standards, having white skin is enough, what we have is not the imposition of justice on an unjust system. We have an imposition of systemic racism on a system that is just, albeit flawed by human failings. But this is the official platform of the Democratic Party and the official agenda of Black Lives Matter, Antifa, the Women's March and the Green New Deal. All of this is performed out in the open with the full support of old guard institutions that depend on the Chinese Communist Party for money and whose agenda they're happy to comply with so long as China keeps paying. If we could, for a moment, leave aside the decades of branding that make us equate conservative and Republican with racist, putting aside level upon level of theory and becoming rooted there is almost no behavior or policy agenda from 2020's Democratic Party and its supporters inside and outside the movement that isn't far more racist than anything Republicans ever propose. Democrats can find statistics showing group disparities, but that does not hold up in the face of policies that are specifically intentionally enacted to treat races differently. Down this path lies only hatred and anger. There is no limiting principle to progressive thought by definition. Its philosophy is strictly utopian. It relies on technocratic assessments of situations performed by partisan hacks and expects compliance based on scientism. Utopia is not in the offing. Adults understand this. There is no escape from the world as is bad things happen. Conservatism, on the other hand, understands human nature and simply asks what could go wrong. First principles build points of view from the ground up rather than proposing a fantasy ideal and backfilling the data. Conservatism has limiting principles. One of those principles agreed upon by almost all of society is that human beings have intrinsic worth. Of course, individuals will fail to meet this standard, but it's far harder for a person to justify racism on the grounds of one's conservatism than on a philosophy that divides people by race and then decides how they should be treated. One of the main Republican issues now deemed racist is what the Democrats call voter suppression. A woman still in the running for Biden's VP, Stacey Abrams, lost in her bid to become Georgia governor she still does not accept the result, even though the black vote in Georgia hit an all-time high in her election. More black voters turned out in her election than in 2016's presidential race. Yet nearly the entire left believes that Abrams was robbed by the racist governor. This is pure fiction. Politico has fact-checked this. The left claims the purge of voter rolls constitutes voter suppression. According to Pew, there are 24 million voter registrations that are, quote, no longer valid or significantly inaccurate. 1.8 million registered voters are deceased and another 2.75 million are registered in multiple states. This country would be better off if all of those were purged. There is no coherent argument against the purge of voter rolls. Worse still, Democrats are trying to enact nationwide mail-in voting. They're using the dangers of COVID to claim it is unsafe to vote in person. If that's true, it's also unsafe to go to the grocery store. Again, there is no justifiable argument on their side. Knowing this, they shift to claims about who will be deprived their right to vote. They do the same about voter ID as if black people can't figure out how to get identification. How is this not demeaning? The American system simply is not racist unless your only focus is on disparities in group outcome and your definitions of racism and white supremacy are ever changing. And of course they are in the progressives view. Anything not to their advantage is called racist or sexist, etc. And if you don't agree with them, that's sexism or white supremacy. The National Museum of African American History and Culture, a Smithsonian museum, published a chart of aspects and assumptions that constituted whiteness. Among the thoughts and behaviors described as whiteness, they listed rational thinking, mechanical time, as in showing up to work on time and making one's appointments, self-reliance, work before play, planning for the future, the nuclear family, avoiding conflict and intimacy and decision-making. This is a veritable lawn sprinkler of racism, and it's soaking everyone. White people avoid conflict and intimacy are we to believe that white people are incapable of dealing with opposition and that they're wholly bereft of love? Are we supposed to believe that black Americans are unable to get places on time, don't value the nuclear family and are ill-equipped for rational thinking? These beliefs and behaviors aren't whiteness. They're habits that have emerged over time and produce good results otherwise known as progress. The woke are constantly telling you what they really think. It might be time to listen. This mentality has consumed the Democratic Party in the current moment, but this isn't new and it's not hidden. For years, mainstream media outlets discuss how to win the black vote and how there will be a permanent Democratic majority based on the rising numbers of the Hispanic population in America. This is seen as normal. It is not normal. Democratic politicians and pundits plan to win future elections on the vote of people who aren't currently allowed to vote or are as yet unborn based solely on their ethnicity. They win the so called black vote by speaking to black voters, which is little more than telling black voters that, in the words of Joe Biden, the Republicans are going to put y'all back in chains. There is no appeal to the actual priorities of black Americans or Hispanic Americans as these often defy Democrat ideology. In a recent radio show, Joe Biden told Charlemagne the God that if you don't vote for him, you ain't black. These politicians, pundits, and media members do this while calling everyone who doesn't hew to their ideology racist. But there are few things more racist than believing entire ethnic groups have the same needs and beliefs, constantly telling them that they're hated by another group, telling them that the party knows what's best for them, and believing that a Marxist system is the only system in which black Americans can be equal. Morally speaking, I cannot think of anything more purely racist than complaints about miscegenation. The belief that races shouldn't intermarry and have racially mixed children. This is built into many cultures, both religious and racial. All ethnic groups have at some point proudly encouraged preservation of the sanctity of their bloodlines. If there is anything more corrosive to ideas of equality than this, I don't know what it is, but this is common practice for Muslims, Jews, and Catholics for certain groups of Indian and Asian Americans for certain groups of black Americans. And it's encouraged directly or indirectly by our woke overseers. The only other people in the country who are against miscegenation are actual white supremacists. Woke America shares quite a few principles with actual white supremacists. Our major media outlets write pieces about the difficulties of interracial relationships or relationships between the woke and not woke, which are specifically discouraged. It's as if they believe it's better that no one tries as if it's better to declare that loving certain people is off limits. Wasn't the entire gay rights movement fought for this very freedom they're now actively trying to defeat this ideology tears at the fabric of our multicultural society, and it prohibits love between people. This ideology is ascendant. It infects everything by deterring love and connection and promoting resentment. The woke ideology propels the abandonment of love by construing every relationship as a power dynamic. Healing is made impossible. The focus on identity makes no sense outside the Marxist perspective. Conservatives are always uncomfortable talking about race for a very good reason. It is conservative to believe that people should be treated equally. And the media narrative makes it impossible to say that without repercussions. The complaint is that Republicans refuse to focus on issues of race. Instead, they focus on conservative values. Well, good The purpose of values and principles is that they can exist outside the self and be made universal. If it's immoral to divide people by race and enact laws that benefit a given race, then it's immoral universally. The problem isn't solved by using the same ideology that created it in the first place, nor can it be solved by massive spending to everyone who needs anything. As if the spending is charity from the Democrats own largesse, there is not a need for a serious conversation about these issues. There is a need for an honest conversation, and that's made impossible in our current culture. The perceptions of truth and goodness have been completely distorted. Every negative character trait that's been ascribed to Trump supporters runs rampant on the left in this moment, Trump supporters were called racist. Show me how. On the other side, we have agitation for a race war defense of those who say and do hateful things, making up excuses and expecting everyone to forgive them based only on their political ideology. Like I can't be racist. I'm one of the good ones. That phrase has a history. Trump supporters are called dumb. But they're not the ones believing that Joe Biden is going to pass a $10 trillion spending plan to save the world, or that Bernie Sanders would pass a $100 trillion plan to save more of the world, or that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is an important voice. This is defended by appeal to theory. Trump supporters are called violent, but they're not the ones burning down cities and shooting people. Where is the moral justification for any of this? With more diversity in Congress, the Democratic agenda hasn't gotten more idea driven or more innovative, despite the branding of the Green New Deal. The parts of their agenda they're able to enact fail in spectacular ways, especially in places they have governed the longest. On every issue, the solution is presented as what the smart people know needs done. But it's just socialism propped up by reference to this or that study, which only exists to support their political narrative in the first place. And of course it does. They fund the studies. All appeals to identity politics are now being used as moral license for heinous immorality. They excuse awful behavior by saying it's for a greater cause. Know who else thinks that everyone who wants to feel righteous while doing terrible things. Trump is now an avatar for their permanent moral license. The justification for everything is that the president is worse, but he is not worse. Barack Obama, with an overwhelming governing majority, did not enact criminal justice reform or prison reform. He didn't create opportunity zones, and he didn't preside over historically low unemployment in every community Democrats pretend to care about. At some point, reality has to matter. So what should we do? The anti-racism movement demands that white Americans treat black Americans as something different. What kind of black person would prefer to be spoken to under guidelines than to have their friends' genuine truth. Search your soul. What do you think deep down about people who treat you in a way that's not honest and genuine? Does it feel better to know the person you're in a relationship with says I love you, but you know they don't feel it in the moment? Of course not. Consider the same with any interaction you've had in business when you know someone is trying to con you. You feel lied to, taken advantage of, and disrespected. Worse still, you know that person intends to use their advantage and not provide anything in return. Genuine, rooted people want respect and dignity, not hashtags. By treating people as accessories to your own life, you tell them they're beneath dignity, and nonetheless, you'll not be the one to provide it. We must reject the entire paradigm of identity politics. When progressives tell you something is racist or sexist, ask them how they will not have any rooted justification for their claim. They just know it usually works in arguments because people who oppose them are legitimately fearful for their livelihoods if they say the wrong thing. A Cato survey shows 62% of Americans are now afraid to express their political opinions for fear of retribution. 50% of people who identify as strong liberals think a coworker should be fired for financially supporting Trump. There is no possibility of honest conversation here. It is not good enough to relent and accept that what you said is racist or sexist. You must push back use of this accusation is immoral. It's mean spirited. It doesn't care about progress. It cares about ensuring their views go unchallenged. It's totalitarian. If the person is close to you, you should tell them that you don't appreciate their character attacks and that you're not interested in participating in any conversation with them. If that's what they're going to do, it's empty posturing and should be confronted as such. Likewise, we need to reject all narratives around power imbalance and political participation based on identity. While race can be a factor in all aspects of life, which no one denies, it's dishonest and unreasonable to imagine it the primary factor in anything. Race isn't even the primary factor in racism because hateful people are disturbed and they use their hate to animate most narratives in their lives racism, sexism, etc. All the toolkit they use to deploy their hatred, not the cause of their hatred. To pretend all white Americans are animated by racial antipathy is unquestionably racist. It is not acceptable for good people to perpetuate this narrative. Why are we so prepared to accept the idea that power and happiness can be quantified in material terms or proven by dynamics at play decades or centuries ago, true power and happiness are found in human relationships and personal betterment, not getting paid to not work and not consuming oneself with fantasies about one's own oppression. There are extremely wealthy people who have nothing approaching happiness, and their power is a factor of material wealth alone. There are people in poor countries who die old and happy, surrounded on all sides by loved ones honoring a life lived well. There is no American for whom this is inaccessible. We are told that women and minority communities are left out of the political process. If this is true, it's true for one reason, their votes are taken for granted by the democratic party. The party has no incentive to fulfill their promises. If the people they continue to fail, continue to vote for Democrats in perpetuity while the representatives they elect refuse to even debate Senator Tim Scott's legislation on police reform. Tim Scott is a black Republican wokes on Twitter. Call him a coon. It is not possible to simultaneously honor your own principles and vote automatically for one party. Women, minorities, and LGBT Americans voting en masse for the Republican Party would not only force the Democrats to prioritize their needs and reform, it would force Republicans to listen to them as they would be incentivized to justify the support. This well has been poisoned by the narrative that conservatism is opposed to their needs because conservatives are not willing to get on their knees and literally wash people's feet as if unwillingness to subjugate oneself to a destructive political narrative is racist. This can't go on. It's not enough to think it will improve after the election. Sure. The rioting in the streets will end and black lives matter and Antifa will disappear for a few more years. But the cultural contagion will continue to spread. We can't allow this. We push back by refusing to be framed as hateful people and refusing to allow other people who aren't hateful to be framed this way. If you have hateful thoughts on a regular basis, you should seek out mental help. There's a very strong likelihood that you're anxious or depressed or that there's something deeper going on. If you don't have hateful thoughts, congratulations, you're not a hateful person. There's nothing more to know. No one is obliged to speak out about anything, much less systems they don't understand on the basis of ideas that make no sense. Hope and dignity cannot be restored by sending out government checks appropriating funds for government social programs, which are then siphoned off by interest groups before helping almost no one do not curb gun violence, eradicate food deserts or fix schools. None of that can happen without safe communities. We should be adding funds for additional police officers and additional training. Businesses can't open and succeed when their customers risk being shot as they walk out with their bags. What incentive does Target have to rebuild burned down stores in cities whose mayors allowed them to be destroyed because they lacked the courage to call violence violence, called people's businesses and employers just objects? and are failing to stop roving bands of violent anarchists from turning progressive cities into veritable hellscapes whose images are so disturbing that CNN and MSNBC refuse to show them concerned that their viewers may turn on the party that allows this to happen in appeasement of Marxist mayhem masked as concern for black lives. The old guard wants us to believe Donald Trump is a dictator. Bent on amassing power and overthrowing the American Constitution. But during the greatest domestic crisis since World War II, he has not tried at any point to consolidate power. Every institution controlled by the old guard has. None more than the media and the Democratic Party. American life has been centered on identity because of the media propagating a political agenda disguised as truth the universities indoctrinating students, the corporations profiting off messages of solidarity with an organization whose sole purpose is Marxist subversion of the American system, an entertainment industry reliant on Chinese money and happy to censor content to appease the Chinese Communist Party tech that seeks to control and exploit us and a party happy to exploit and pour salt in the country's deepest wounds to win elections have all betrayed the American people. There is no greater threat to any vulnerable community than the weaponization of American division. There is no future for a country determined to center itself around disparate identities. There is only one identity that Americans should care about being American. If you're American, then you cherish Americans. That means everybody. That's all anyone needs to worry about. Let's center society around that. Whether you're a total newbie to podcasting, or even if you've had a show before, like me, you know how intimidating it can be to start your show. The tech side especially can be daunting. Please follow the podcast on Instagram and parlor at I'm Your Moderator. Soon, I'll be up on Rumble with a video aspect. In the meantime, if you'd like to support the show, I have a Substack, I'mYourModerator.substack.com, where you can donate, or you can donate at Anchor.fm by searching "Be Reasonable." With your moderator Chris Paul, I hope to see you soon. Back out on the rain. Acting as moderator for tonight's broadcast. In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app going to t.me slash I'm your moderator on social media you can follow me on truth social getter and gab at I'm your moderator I also have channels on rumble and bit shoot if you'd like to follow the writing you can find me at I'm your moderator.substack.com the merch site is cancelcouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture